The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, how you doing? All right. We're winding up for the holidays. What a fantastic season this is, isn't it? Uh, I visited the dentist today, so my mouth is finally working again. You guys will be thankful for that because I was almost unintelligible. Jeff said it looked like I had a stroke, so uh, that's exciting. Hey, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this evening, picking it up in verse 31 to, to start off and making our way through verse 1 of chapter 9. So we are getting close to wrapping up our Live Like Jesus series. And this has been a fantastic time of just meditating on the character and the nature of our Savior and what it means to live like Him. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I have been pressed to grow in some ways. I've been strengthened and encouraged in some ways. I've been convicted in some ways, and God has been working through this series, so I'm, I'm super thankful that we've taken this time together. Tonight, the topic is die like Jesus, which seems funny in a series called Live Like Jesus. <laughs> but my task is to teach us tonight, or to at least help us to dip our finger into the water of what it looks like to die like Jesus. Now, the passage that we're going to be looking at here poses a a statement that leaves us with a question. Jesus is going to say here in this passage, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So here's the question. What does it mean to take up the cross and follow Jesus? What does that even mean? I can remember in my season in Cave Junction one night we... Me and the the youth group kids, we decided we're going to do some street evangelism. So we're out on the streets of Cave Junction. We're sharing the gospel with people as we we meet. And and lo and behold, there was one of those guys who was like walking across the country with a two-by-four cross... That's got like a little, like a, like a wagon wheel attached to the very back of it. And he's dragging that along. And so we're out witnessing and talking to people. And I ended up uh, sitting down with this guy for a little bit of a break and, and talking to him. And now he was, he was a great guy and had good reasons for why God had called him to this ministry. Matter of fact, God had given him a heart for the homeless. And he had a house and a family. Uh, not a marriage family, but uh, a, a primary family that he'd come from, back in Texas. And God called him to love the homeless population enough that he would be willing to live like them. And so he was traveling with a group of homeless people, uh, ministering to them the gospel, carrying this cross the whole time, from Texas all the way. I, I met him in Cave Junction. Now, is that what it means? Does it mean to like make a two-by-four cross with a wheel on it? Tote that around? 
Or, or, or perhaps maybe you come from a, uh, a Catholic background where, you know, crucifixes are kind of a big deal. You should tote one around with you all the time. And before you pray, you should cross yourself, make the sign of the cross. Maybe that's your background. Is that what Jesus means? What does he mean when he says that we are to take up the cross and follow him? So before we dive into the scriptures tonight, let's open our hearts before the Lord one more time. God, as we come to your word, we recognize its authority over us. Oh, how we would love to make it say what we want it to say. And the pulpits across our country, Lord, are scattered with both people that faithfully preach the truth of your word and those who twist it and use it for their own purposes. God, Spare us that tonight. May we come with simplicity, with honesty, with humility to your word. Receive its truth, God, and be changed as a consequence of it. May it shape us, Lord. Bring the reality of eternity to bear on our lives this evening. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this passage here in Mark chapter 8 is, is a fantastic passage. Why? Because just before this, something incredible happens. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and he begins to say, the most incredible statement about the nature and character of Jesus. Something, this is before the cross. This is before the resurrection. This is before any of the other things have taken place that, that really identify who he is as the Son of God. And, and, and Jesus says, Thou art the Christ, or excuse me, Peter says to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus immediately responds to Peter, Oh, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father, which is in heaven, and on that confession that you just made, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Peter, at this moment, is feeling pretty good. I mean, he's like, you know, there are 12 disciples. If we were to name them in order... I'm probably at least in the top three. And then Jesus, after this incredible moment, after this revelation of who he is, begins to give them some more information. Verse 31, and this is where we pick it up. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. <laughs> now, Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. What does that mean to Peter? 
When, when he thinks Messiah, he has all of the, the baggage and the training that has come as a, a part of his Jewish upbringing, that the Messiah is going to be this warrior king. He's going to cast off all the oppression of foreign entities. Israel will once again be gathered as a nation whose sole identity is in the Lord. Worship will be restored into the way that God has intended. The kingdom will be established. The people will celebrate all the feasts and the festivals. And God will establish the rule of Israel forever. He has all of that packed away in his head. And then Jesus comes along like a sledgehammer and says, Oh, by the way, I'm going to die. And Peter is like, What? I... Jesus, I know I just called you the Son of God. I, I just said that you, you know, you are the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, uh, and that you're the Son of the living God, but perhaps you don't know what that role entails. <laughs> that they, I, maybe you don't quite understand it, so let me explain it to you. And as the passage goes on, it says that he said, Jesus had said this to them plainly. And so Peter took him aside. Love this. Peter doesn't want Jesus to be embarrassed. Right? He's like, hey, uh, come on over here. I just want to explain something to you just real quick. Right? And then he began to rebuke him. In verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whoa. Peter is on cloud nine. Oh, you're blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He goes from that to being equated with Satan. <laughs> All in just a, a short, brief conversation. Why? Because Peter's agenda was not God's agenda. Peter's agenda was not God's agenda. Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke by another rebuke. And then turning to the crowd, when he says to Peter, Peter, you have set your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. Jesus turns to a crowd of people and begins to instruct them as to what it means to follow him. Now notice these next words. Powerful stuff unfolding here. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whosoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also shall be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's three things I want you to take note of in this passage. First of all, the radicalness of the command. The radicalness of the command. The reason for the command, verses 35 to 37. And the ramifications of the command, verses 38 through chapter 9, verse 1. So, we have the radicalness of the command, the, reasons for, the reason for the command, and the ramifications of the command. Tackling our first one here. They knew what it meant. The crowd that heard Jesus say, If any man wants to come after me, must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They knew what that meant. Why? Well, crosses for us have been greatly sanitized. We make them out of silver and gold and plaster and wood. They're never covered with blood. But in their day, crosses lined the streets on the way into major cities. It's where criminals hung. It's where those who were at odds with the Roman Empire hung and died awful, torturous deaths. Sometimes the killings would be so huge that they would run out of wood to nail people up on, and they would use trees instead, live trees, to crucify people. They they knew what the cross meant. In the same way that you and I would compare the cross to the electric chair or the, the gas chamber or lethal injection... What it meant for Jesus to say, take up your cross and follow me, was a radical command to come and die. You see, the cross was one of the most horrendous torture devices ever invented. It it originated with the Persians. And and the Persians, they had a sort of primitive form of crucifixion. What they would do is take a a long pole, sharpen the top of it, bury it in the ground, and then hoist a a human body, a prisoner, up onto the, the spike. And either through their midsection or actually up through the anus, they would set a person on that spike and let the weight of their own body pull them down the spike until they were dead. If they did it through the midsection, it would take hours and sometimes days for you to die. It was completely horrific. It was torturous. The Greeks improved upon it. Rather than just using the stake, they used the stake and a crossbar. 
the Romans continued to improve upon it, and they used the stake, which is called the stipe, and the patibulum, the crossbar, and they had two different versions. They had the tau, which was the, a capital T crossbar, where the, the crossarm went on the top of the pole, and, and uh, they had the Latin, which was the small or lowercase t, where the, the crossarm went across the midsection of the pole. And a lot of times they would... They would crucify people at eye level so that people could come and look right into the eyes of the people who were suffering and dying. It was so torturous that that women were often crucified facing the cross because not even the cruel Romans could bear to see the suffering in the face of a woman. Sometimes, to prolong the suffering, they would nail or fasten their feet to the cross because in hanging, it, it, would, it would make it very difficult for them to breathe and, and they would asphyxiate. So they would fasten their feet with nails to a cross or give them a platform to stand on. Or if it, they were really cool, cruel and they wanted them to suffer for days and days and not just die in a matter of hours, and they wanted to really make a statement, they would put a seat underneath the butt of a person on the cross so that they were not able to let go and and finally give out and not be able to breathe. They would just have to stay there and and suffer until trauma overtook their organs and, and they would die. So when Jesus says to this crowd, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He knows and they know what he's saying. It's a call. It's a call to come and to die. Here is the radicalness of this command. You ready? To follow is to die. To follow Jesus is to die. It is a call on the life of a person to come and give everything and give all to come and to die, forsaking everything else, clinging to only one Savior. All of your eggs are in one basket. It is Him and Him alone, no matter what. Do you see the weight of this command? Do you see the radicalness of this command? Notice also the the reason for the command, verses 35 through 37. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, the message of the kingdom, will save it. The reason for the command. He wants you to find eternal life. He wants you to find eternal life. He's like, look, look, you think that life is found in preserving yourself, in self-preservation. You think what makes life awesome and worth living is in, in wasting it on yourself. You live for what is temporary. And your joy is temporary. 
It's built on circumstances and prosperity and a lack of illness and whether or not things are good and how you feel about the relationships in your life. And, and, and your joy is based upon all those things. What I want for you is true life, eternal life, life that cannot be taken away. So find eternal life, he says in verse 35. Verse 36, find eternal wealth. The reason for this command is not only that you would find eternal life, but that you might find eternal wealth. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Now, there's a variety of people in this room, and and each of you has achieved a measure of success in the world around you. Maybe you you crawled out of a terrible family situation and and you have a family of your own now. Maybe you are climbing the ladder at your work and you you feel like there's a a measure of, I, I am moving forward, I am successful in life. And yet all that you have gained perishes. That 401k, that family that is so precious to you right now, that circumstance that you think makes life worth living, it's all fading. It's all going to go away. And at some point, your your life here in the temporary world, in in the world that is not eternal, will come to a stop, and you will live out of either the wealth of your eternity or the poverty of your eternity. When Jesus says here in verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? He's saying, listen, there are things more important than what you are clinging to in this life. And so take up a cross and follow me. Find eternal life. Find eternal wealth. Verse 37, find eternal grace. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Listen. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can purchase your soul. There is no work. There is no number of devotions, no number of doors that you knock on to share the gospel, no no amount of meals that you could feed another person. There is no charity that you can give to, no check that you can write. There is only the blood of Jesus that can redeem your soul. And where do you get that resource? From him from following him and coming to him. What else can you give in exchange for your soul? Nothing. There's nothing of infinite worth to God that is more valuable to God than his son. There is one price. His life His soul or yours? And so Jesus says, find eternal grace 
find eternal grace. It's found in following me. Don't settle for what cannot redeem you. What cannot make you okay. What cannot give you worth or value. Don't settle for those things. You, come to me. Find eternal life. Find eternal wealth. Find eternal grace. This is the reason for the command. Only the blood of Jesus and only by following him. Now notice the ramifications of the command. Verses 38 through chapter 9, verse 1. For whosoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. First of all, the ramifications of the command to not take up a cross is to be ashamed of the one who bore it. To say, listen, I I want all the benefits of Jesus, but none of the sacrifice. I I want what he gives me as goodies, eternal life, freedom from sin, get out of hell, free card. I want all that, but I don't want to do what he says. I don't want to learn about him. I don't want to grow in relationship with him. Matter of fact, what I would prefer is that Jesus just butt out of my life and stay out of it. You don't get to pick. To follow Jesus is to take up a cross. To get the benefits that come with Jesus, you need to get Jesus. You can't separate it. It's his authority. It's his love for you. It's his redemption. It's all rolled up in one person, one package, and you can't separate it out. To not take up a cross is to be ashamed of Jesus, and to not take up a cross is to be ashamed of his words. Notice what he says there, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. (laughs) Think about that. What do you think that crowd was thinking in that exact moment? Oh, these, these words. I don't know about this. This is pretty harsh. Take up your cross. If I said to you, hey, listen, if you want to be a part of heritage, if you want to be sincere, true members of heritage, you need to learn to take up your electric chair and follow me. You'd be like, eh, I don't know about that. That sounds a little too controlling, a little too possessive. Jesus throws down the gauntlet. says, me and my words, if you're going to follow me, it means you take up this cross. You bear this thing and you follow me. To not take up a cross is to be ashamed of Jesus. To not take up a cross is to be ashamed of Jesus' words. And to leave your cross is to leave your Savior. 
You see, if following Jesus means that we're going to follow in his footsteps, that means we're, we're going to imitate him and live like him. That means at some point, you and I are going to hit the crisis of having to ask some serious questions about our hearts. Do I live for me and my kingdom? Or do I live for Messiah and his? To leave your cross, to say, I refuse to sacrifice, I refuse to suffer, I refuse to obey, I refuse to follow, is to leave your Savior. Well, that's freaky, isn't it? Isn't that some scary stuff? Jesus is throwing down some words here that ought to be terrifying to all of us. So then what does it mean? Okay, Jeremy, I I heard what you said. Okay, there's this radical command. Okay, and there's a reason for the command. He wants us to have eternal life. He wants us to have eternal wealth and eternal grace. That's what Jesus wants for us. And, 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 and there's ramifications if we don't obey that command. If we're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. If we deny him, he will also deny us. To abandon him is to abandon our salvation. So this is serious stuff, Jeremy. So what the heck does he mean by take up a cross? What does that even mean to take up a cross then? You know, it hit me when I was thinking about this. I got to thinking, what did it mean to the apostles? I mean, as the New Testament unfolds, right, and you, and you begin to think about the things that Peter and James and John and Paul wrote How often do they refer to the cross? And in what context? What what did they think the cross's implications were for their lives as a believer? Was it only payment for sin? Or is there other stuff that's happening there? And as I began to think and meditate on this, several themes began to emerge. There is this principle that you will continually and constantly hear in the scriptures and repeated in sermons. What's the principle? It's this. It's a simple idea. What God displays for us, he desires to live through us. It's a simple principle. What God displays in his son for us. He desires then through his son to live through us. And we see this carried out in the epistles again and again. So I'm going to give you a few little notes here that I hope will be highly practical as to what it means to die like Jesus. And what it means when We say what God displays for us, he desires to live through us. First of all, the cross is about 
identity. It's about identity. You see, in the life of Jesus, displayed for us, if you're taking notes, under the cross being about identity, you can say displayed for us, and then a B point here, lived through us. The cross is about identity. In the life of Jesus, we see displayed for us the reasons that he lived and died. Jesus died on a cross for obedience to the Father. As a sacrifice for the broken and for sinners. Because he is a compassionate high priest and he cares about the pains of others and he wanted to identify with their suffering. He demonstrated the way to live and die and then he called us to follow him in that. That the same values, the same cares, the same guiding Uh, principles and and, and reasons for Jesus' living would be lived out now in and through us. And we then look at Jesus and identify ourselves as being those who follow Jesus. To take up your cross meant that you were headed the same direction as Jesus. He was headed to Golgotha. Right? Why? In obedience to the Father. Why? In love for sinners. Why? In, in care and compassion for those that are broken. What does he expect for us? Take the same path. That's our identity. Our identity is wrapped up in who he is. To take up your cross meant that you were headed the same direction as Jesus. Everything that he stands for is what you stand for. It means that God's mission to the world is your mission. It means that God's love for the lost is your love for the lost. It's his heart in you, broken for others. It means that God's war against sin is your war against sin. It means God's compassion for the wounded is your compassion Are you following? Is this your identity? Question. What are you known for? What are you known for? When people think about your identity, what's the first thing that comes to their mind as it relates to you? Are you following in the footsteps of Jesus? Listen listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he describes his life following Jesus. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. What's he mean by that? It's like, I put my life on hold for the sake of God's cause. That's what he means. Behold, I die daily. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because the, the kingdom that is eternal is worth far more than anything that I could suffer here on this earth. For me to live is Christ. I'm, I'm identifying with him 
for me to die, it's just better because I actually get to be with him. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through, or 8 through 15. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and and, and that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then he ends that statement by saying this, and let Those of us who are mature think this way. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear it in the preaching of the apostles? Do you hear it in the statements of Paul? I'm I'm all in. My whole identity, everything about me is wrapped up. All my eggs are in one basket. He has all of me. He displayed it for me. And now he desires to live it through me. So the cross is about identity. It's also about self-denial. The cross is about self-denial. How? Well, displayed for us. Jesus put aside his own needs and endured the cross, despising the shame. Do you guys remember when Sam was teaching out of Hebrews? How he shared with us from the first part of Hebrews chapter 12. How Jesus despised the shame, but he endured what? The cross for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Partially, it was us. It was the fellowship that he would have with you and with me. It was the redemption that would come. It was the the, the restoration of all things. New heaven, new earth, no sin, Satan vanquished. He was looking ahead to that joy, and he goes, oh, man, I'll suffer it. I'll do it. I'll deny myself. He denied himself in life and temptation, and he denied himself again in death at the cross. Remember his prayer? Remember when he was at Gethsemane? He was on his knees, and he's sweating drops of blood, and he says to the Father, If there be any other way, what was that saying? I don't really like what's coming. 
Nevertheless, I'll deny myself, not my will, but yours be done. It was displayed for us through Jesus. But then God calls it, calls us to have him live it through us. The cross is about self-denial, displayed for us in Jesus, and then it's lived through us. Turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 6. Let's, let's take a look at a fantastic piece of Scripture here. Romans chapter 6. Paul is responding to this early Roman church, a church that he has not visited, in, in questions relating to how to handle sin issues. And, and he's establishing grace for them, right? And letting them know what grace looks like, that God gives us his unmerited, unearned, undeserved love, acceptance, atonement, and forgiveness through his son. And, and then the question comes up, well, then what shall we say? Or should we continue in sin that more grace might come? Is that how that works? Well, like, we were sinning a lot, and we were apart from God, and God gave us grace. So should we just keep sinning so more grace will come? And then he answers that, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, the cross is about self-denial. Putting sin to death. Mortification of the flesh. Saying, I can't continue to live contentedly in sin. There's just no way that I can do that. Because Jesus died to purchase my freedom from sin. How can I live contentedly in it? I'm at war with sin. I'm putting it to death. See, here's the problem. We have, we have sort of a dual nature, if you will. We have the part of us that has been made regenerate by the working of the Holy Spirit, but we still are trapped in these fleshly bodies. When I was a kid, every once in a while, we would have a hound dog that would eat a chicken. And there was a kind of a, a remedy for that on the ranch, that some of you will not like. I can guarantee it. <laughs> you would take that dead chicken and you would tie it really tightly around the dog's neck so he had to wear the dead chicken. And you would let the dead chicken essentially just rot off of the dog. Now, of course, they are dragging themselves through the yard and flopping all over. Why? They just want rid of the dead chicken. They are so tired of the dead chicken. But pretty soon, they got the picture. Every time I kill a chicken, it's rotting around my neck. (laughs) Great picture here of what it's like to be stuck with the flesh, right? Right? 
a part of us longing for redemption, longing for freedom, longing to be whole, and we still have the dead chicken of the old man stuck around our necks. During the Napoleonic Wars, men were conscripted into the French army by a lottery system. If your name was drawn, you had to go off to battle, but in rare cases, you could sometimes get someone else to take your place in war, and you were thereby exempt. On one occasion, the the authorities came to a certain man and told him that his name had been drawn, but he refused to go, saying, hey, I was killed two years ago. And at first, they questioned his sanity, but he insisted that this was in fact the case. He claimed that the records could show that he had been conscripted two years previously and that he had been killed in action. How can that be? They questioned. You're alive now. And he explained that when his name came up, a close friend said to him, you have a large family, but I am not married and nobody is dependent upon me. I'll take your name and address and go in your place. The records upheld the man's claim The case was referred to Napoleon himself, who decided that the country had no legal claim on that man. He was free because another man had died in his place. What a powerful picture. It's displayed for us and then lived through us. You see, the cross is about self-denial. The cross is about sacrifice. The cross is about sacrifice. How? Displayed for us. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. Nobody's making me do this. I offer my own life as a sacrifice, and I lay it down. He says, I am the good shepherd. Why? Because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm not like the thieves and the robbers. I'm not like the hired hand who just does it for money. And when the wolf comes, when the robbers come, he flees. No, I'm the good shepherd who stands his ground and lays down his life for the sheep. Nobody takes that from me. I lay it down. It's displayed for us. And then it's to be lived through us. You know, in the Psalms, God tells us that he doesn't want us to be like the ox or the mule that has to be led about by bit and bridle. It's like, man, I don't want to be fighting with you. If you've ever been around horses, so maybe some of you here, you know what a hackamore bit is. A hack, if you have a, a horse that's particularly unruly, there's a, a, a bit called a hackamore. And there's several different types. There's ones that have like these little prongs with these tongue depressors that, that push down on the, the tongue. And then there's some that sort of break in the middle and it clamps down on the jaw real hard of the horse. And, and so if you have a horse that's being unruly, you pull back on the reins and that thing buckles or depresses the tongue. And, and, and the next thing you know, that horse is like, ah, oh, okay, I'm listening. God says, I don't want that kind of relationship with you. I want you to be like the ox. They got to get a, a, you know, electric prod and you know, move them along that way. I don't want you to be like the horse that I'm, I'm pulling on the reins and trying to, to, to get you to, 
to, to move down the road like this. I want you to be my servant that I can lead with my eye. That I can be like, and you're like, yeah, I'm on it. Show me what to do. I'm here to please you. I want to serve you. I want to live for you. You see, God doesn't want begrudging servants or heartless warriors who never believed in the king or the battle in the first place. He spews the lukewarm out of his mouth. Why? Because they make him sick. He displayed for us a life that was sacrificial, that was laid down out of love and adoration. Listen. In the Old Testament, the major rebuke of the prophet Isaiah was not that Israel was not making sacrifices. It's not that they were not attending temple services. It was not that they weren't keeping the feasts and festivals and holidays. The problem is that the people who were there in Isaiah's day were doing all of that. They went to church. They read the words of God. They received the truths. They made the sacrifices. They paid the tithe. And God says, I'm going to judge you. What? Why? They're doing all the right stuff. Well, he gives the reason. Because this people is a people that honors me with their lips, but their heart. Their heart is so far from me. Will you lay your life down and take up your cross because you want to? Like Jesus wanted to? Because it is your reasonable service of worship to God that it pleases you, knowing the love that God has for you, to respond in like manner and say, God, have all of me. Take it all. I sacrifice, I offer myself to you, not begrudgingly, not out of duty alone and obedience alone, but out of a heart that loves you. So the cross is about sacrifice. The cross is about obedience. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Flip back a little ways if you're in Romans, not far enough. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. and Having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. So he's... he's begging the Philippians to be in unity, right? To have affection and sympathy and love for one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition, verse 3, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind is that? who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, look at this word, obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. See, the cross is about obedience displayed for us in the life of Jesus. And then what is he doing to the Philippians? He's saying, now that you've seen this in Jesus, let it be lived through you. Let Jesus live that kind of obedience through you. What Jesus did, we do also. We value God's will above our own. Paul uses the example of Jesus' death to call the Philippian believers to humble obedience to God. So the cross is about obedience. The cross is about service. How? Displayed for us and lived through us. How so? You know, the deep love that God has for people is clearly displayed. This passage that we just looked at, God owed, is owed everything. God, the, the creation is in debt to the creator. And everything that has been created owes its existence to God. They start out in debt. And yet, what does he do? He humbles himself. And Philippians 2 here tells us that through Jesus... God made himself a servant and humbled himself even unto death, even the death on the cross. It's displayed, the servitude of God, the servant heart of God is displayed through the cross, through what Jesus did. Okay, but, but how does that live through us? Well, there's lots of examples of that. There's this example here in the church. There's also a great one in Ephesians chapter 5. When it's talking about marriage and it says to the husband, husbands, use the authority that God's given you. For what? To love your wife like Christ loves the church. To serve her. Use your authority. Use your leadership, your headship to serve, to care for. He holds up Jesus as the example of sacrificial, servant-hearted love in a marriage. The cross is about serving. It's about service to others. And the cross is about triumph. Last point. How? Displayed for us. Colossians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll turn there and uh, read it to you. But in Colossians chapter 2, picking it up in uh, verse 6, it says this, Therefore, if you, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And 
You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. He displayed for us the victory over everything, every enemy, sin, dealt with at the cross. The enemy triumphed over at the cross. A world that is broken and, and irredeemable is, is healed and called to redemption at the cross. It's displayed through Jesus. And now he calls us and says, now let me live that through you. Now, God invites us by our lives to do it again. What was being displayed through Jesus on the cross, his victory over sin, the call to a redeemed life. What was being displayed in, in, in Jesus on the cross, his victory over our enemy, is now being lived through us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through chapter 3, verse 3, we're told that we are God's living epistles to the world. To some, we're a fragrance of death, and to others, a fragrance of life. But God is writing through our lives a, 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 a declaration of who he is through the way that we live. We see, the world sees, the triumph of Jesus through our battle against sin, through our victory over the enemy, through our call to a new life. We display grace as we receive grace. We display love as we receive love. We display hope as we receive hope. We display freedom and dependence as we receive those things from God. And like the Passover defined Israel, the cross defines the Christian. Therefore, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and step up. We are invited to live and to die like Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word and for this reminder. As we go, God, help it not to be stolen away by the birds of the air. Preserve it in our hearts and may it bear fruit for your glory as we desire to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night.